Testing, testing, uh, <laughs> All right, let me just start this thing. You're listening to Episode. I'm Natalie. You may also know me on the internet streets as Tali or Miss Tali. Or maybe you've never heard of me at all, and that's fine too. I went on a quest to learn little known stories about Haiti. So I talked with a group of amazing Haitian scholars and thinkers and asked them to tell me a favorite anecdote of theirs. And now I'm inviting you to come learn with me. So when we started Way Magazine, what we envisioned was to create this space where Haitians could come and share our own stories from our own perspectives, especially since we live in this world where narratives about our country are often created and controlled by sources that are not of us. So we thought it's important that if these narratives exist, that our own voices coexist alongside them so that they don't mute our voices, that they don't, they don't overpower our own perspectives. Well, of course, there was a time in history where loudmouths like us didn't have access to computers or an internet because they didn't exist. But even still, this uh, dichotomy of different voices from outside Haiti and inside Haiti trying to tell the world about Haiti existed. Well, I had a talk recently with Dr. Marlene Doubt, and she's a literary historian. I didn't know what that was, so I'm going to tell you what it is. So she studies history through the lens of literature of a given area. And so she's made it her mission to study these narratives about Haiti throughout history from Haitian authors and non-Haitian authors through fictional works and non-fiction works. And it's, it's pretty cool. Check it out. You know, I originally went to graduate school to study the Francophone literature of Louisiana. I just thought I, I had double majored in English and French as an undergraduate, and I really wanted to continue with my French, but I also wanted to work on, you know, Anglophone texts as well from the United States. And one of the interesting things that happened was that I started to find out that there was this vast corpus of 19th century Haitian writing, and it kept coming up in the literature um, from the United States, African-American literature, but also newspapers and newspapers from Louisiana. And I just thought I need to go and see, you know, kind of who these people are and and, um, what their story is. And there was so much that I just really kind of switched what I wanted to do. And I um, decided to make a large part of my studies um, focusing on um, actual Haitian writers from the 19th century. And at that time in particular, there wasn't a whole lot on um, outside of Haiti from 19th century Haitian authors, studies of 19th century Haitian authors. And so that's kind of what I did. And it really did um, connect me to kind of my history and my family history in Haiti in sort of very interesting ways because my family members Marlene's first book, Tropics of Haiti, analyzes 19th century literary works about Haiti by authors from around the world who wanted to narrate the Haitian Revolution. You can imagine, as she researched for this book, she came across a number of problematic themes and patterns. One in particular is called, (laughs) wait for it, The Mulatto's Revenge. The story that people were telling in the time period, in the 1790s, particularly in the early 1790s, was that mulattoes wanted to get revenge on their white fathers, either for enslaving them or not recognizing them and giving them rights. And then the more I looked, uh, when I looked more deeply into the repetition of that portrayal, it actually became more about, um, less about actual racial identity or racial category and more about incongruity. 
And so that's where that one of the ideas I talk about in the book is monstrous hybridity. And Toussaint Louverture himself is written about as a monstrous hybrid. Sometimes he's actually called a mulatto by people who just, you know, aren't really aware of his history. But other times it was that idea that he was an African who knew enlightenment philosophy made him a kind of a hybrid, an intellectual or social hybrid in a way. Mm-hmm. And that hybridity led him to want to rebel. And so that when, that's where the idea of vengeance comes in, that it wasn't because they wanted liberty or, and freedom and equality, but that they wanted revenge for something, things denied to them. And I was just fascinated in the, at the way in which you could create a narrative in which people seeking freedom suddenly could become about them wanting to get revenge on you and that and the repetition of it over time. I guess I'm, I'm confused by that. How big of a percentage was the population even mulatto? Well, that's the thing. I mean, the the population of mulattoes were, was so small compared to enslaved Africans. Right. Um, some numbers put it at 30,000. I mean, so the idea, well, and then the other idea is that they inspired or they encouraged or colluded with enslaved Africans and to, to rebel. Wow. Um, and in fact, Julien Raymond, you know, he said as, even as early as the 1790s, just to show you how popular that narrative was, he was, he was writing back to the white colonists and he said, that's ridiculous. He said, do you think that an enslaved African needs the Société des Amis des Noirs or needs free people of color to tell them? that they should fight and agitate for liberty. Do you think that anyone needs to read Rousseau to know that they're not free? And so it's funny to me that even in you know 1793 and 1791, he's saying this, which, which tells me that as many as I found, there are many more that I probably never found that are telling the same story. And in a way it's propaganda. Sure, and is it also like a covert way to credit yourself? It totally is. And also when you get down to sort of the racial taxonomies, the idea that it was like the part of them that was white mixed with the part that was black, but really the white part made them sort of understand that they should try to get liberty. And you just sort of are like rolling your eyes when you're reading this because, you know, it sounds so disingenuous that you just wonder, do they believe the things they're writing or is it really, I need to create a narrative that serves my interests? And I think there's probably a little bit of both in there, but it was just fascinating to me. Marlene also addresses the portrayal of women in these works, or rather, the lack of it. You know, one of the interesting things that happens, um, or at least happened to me when I studied the Haitian Revolution, is that I realized there was a relative lack of scholarship about women and the revolution. Um, But from sort of the readings that I had done, I realized this wasn't because nobody was saying that women, you know, people weren't saying, no, women didn't participate in the revolution. They weren't saying that. Um, and we also know that women did. Thomas Madieu and Beaubrand Duin described this in their 19th century histories. Um, and it's also not the case that women didn't participate in slave resistance during the colonial period, so before the revolution. But so I wondered, you know, what, where does this disconnect come from? And I sort of concluded to myself that maybe it's, we have a hard time seeing them. And I think there's a few different reasons for this. I think one is that uh, the trope of sort of the tropical temptress, so the idea that women of color were equal parts seduction and treachery, and that sort of their business during the colonial period and the revolution was sexual liaisons with white colonial men. Um, and I think another reason is that what often counts as rebellion is violent armed resistance. 
But sometimes women are narrated in these writings as um, both the fictional and non-fictional writings as having participated in slave resistance, colonial resistance, or and even the Haitian Revolution in very different ways. And I think um, another reason is that our textual sources that talk about women of color were often and almost always written by men. And so much of our knowledge about women of color in the colonial and revolutionary eras is then filtered from the point of view of men, often white colonial men, and they wrote with their own goals and interests um, in mind. And this is one of the reasons I think that black female sexuality is so dominant in these narratives. The men were right, that was what interested them. So that's sort of the stories that they told. But the story I wanna tell today um, is one that while it was still written by a man, um, it was written by a man of color um, from colonial Saint-Domingue and later independent Haiti. Um, All right, it's story time. The story Marlene tells us is by one of Haiti's first historians most commonly known as Juan Le Christophe's secretary, but he was also a prolific writer who wrote many volumes about the Haitian Revolution. And uh, the writer is quite a famous one. Uh, it's Baron de Vate. Baron de Vate rarely talked about his personal life in these works. Um, he preferred to focus much more on describing the horrors of slavery, deconstructing racist pro-colonial writing. Yet in a moving passage that appears in what is probably his most famous and important work, uh, Le Système Colonial des Voilés, the Colonial System Unveiled, published in 1814. Vate tells a story about his mother, um, and her name was Elisabeth Mimi Dumas. Her full name was Marie-Françoise Elisabeth Dumas. That was her Christian name. She was a free woman of color. She was described as a quadroon in the parlance of the day. Mimi, that was her colloquial name, um, was the daughter, a fille naturelle, which means that she was the illegitimate daughter, of a very famous and wealthy white um, French plantation owner in Marmelade. And his name was Pierre Dumas. Vati was notoriously circumspect about the fact that he was the black descendant of a family of planters from Saint-Domingue. He proclaimed his blackness from the heights of you know, every mountain in Haiti, um, figuratively speaking. But the fact that his family had been planters in the colonial period, he never discusses. But in Le Système, he tells a remarkable story about his mother, um, whom he had elsewhere referred to only as, quote, the African woman who gave him life. And he tells this story about her. And this is the story that ends up linking him and their family um, to you know, plantation-owning society. So Pierre Dumas was evidently a very cruel enslaver. This is something that Vate did not try to conceal. So on one occasion, an enslaved woman on his grandfather's plantation gave birth to a baby. And the baby is described as having had a weak complexion. According to Vate, because of this, his grandfather ordered the baby to be thrown into a burning oven. But in Vate's words, the planter's daughter, so Vate's mother, Elizabeth Mead, was so outraged and moved with compassion that she threw herself at the feet of her quote-unquote barbaric father, that's what Vate calls him. She ordered him to give her the baby. She promised that she would take care of the baby so that the mother could continue to work. So this implies that Pierre Dumas thought this baby is sickly and the mother's going to have to spend a lot of time with this baby and so she's not going to be able to return to work. Dumas, uh, Vate says, was moved more by the logic of his daughter's argument than by the humanity of it. So he was more concerned with the work that would get to be done if he allowed his daughter to do this. So he granted her the wish. So in a sense, this is a story about the cruelty of slavery and the savagery of Vate's own grandfather. But from another optic, um, it is also a story about the heroism and bravery of Vate's mother. 
And this much comes through when Vate tells us that as a result of his mother's actions that day, Laurent, which was the name of this child, is now 45 years old, Vate says, and the father of a huge family. He is an excellent manager and a really good Haitian farmer. So one of the things that this story um, brings to bear for me is the material rather than abstract consequences of the Haitian Revolution. You know, sometimes scholars ask, did the Haitian Revolution succeed or fail? And they offer this or that as evidence. They talk about present day Haiti or they talk about the U.S. occupation. Um, they wonder, did slave, were slave rebellion and resistance successful on other islands of the Caribbean if it didn't lead to revolution and, and independence? And you could sort of then ask, well, what does success mean? And you could behave as if there's not an answer to the question or imply that the question is not nuanced enough. Um, but I think that the case of Elizabeth Mimi demonstrates very clearly that the goals of colonial resistance and later the Haitian Revolution were very straightforward. And that was to survive and to say no to colonial authority. And in this case, Mimi's actions led to a generation and ostensibly generations of people being here in this world today who otherwise would not have been if Laurent, the baby, had been thrown into the fire, for example. So the meaning, and I think really the success of Vate's mother's actions, you know, were not at all lost on Vate. Vate wrote this apostrophe to his mother at the end of the story. He said, virtuous and kind Mimi, you are no longer on this earth, but you remain in our hearts, enjoying eternal blessings as the reward for your good deeds. I here consecrate your name and your virtues in the name of admiration and friendship for all kind and sensitive hearts. So I think we really have to start, you know, wondering and imagining the ways in which every act of resistance, however small or seemingly insignificant in a relative sense, especially female resistance, was a critical blow um, against the patriarchal society of enslavement that existed in Saint-Domingue. And this is because of the life-giving possibility of these actions, rather than the life-ending ones, often narrated in the context of, of revolutions in general, but really the Haitian Revolution. You can follow Marlene Dowd on Twitter at Fictions of Haiti, and be sure to check out her blog, HaitianRevolutionaryFictions.com. Some of the original music on today's episode was brought to you by me and my garage band hat, but this lovely voice you're hearing right now is Saga Jinnamo, so special thank you to her for allowing us to use her music. Her debut album, Lost Breed, is available on iTunes and Spotify and all those other good things. Of course, I gotta shout out my squad. Thank you to Tina for helping me edit this. And huge shout out to the homie Daryl from Wiki Music for actually naming this podcast. Make sure you follow us on social media at Woy Magazine. And be sure to read us at www.woymagazine.com. <laughs>